This podcast is from the Rand Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. For more Rand analysis, reports, and commentary on issues at the forefront of today's policy debate, visit www.rand.org. Thompson, the CEO of Rand, um, I always like to bring, begin these with the uplifting message. Please turn off your Blackberries, uh, pagers, cell phones, and other electronic devices. Um, We've been, uh, we work for a lot of different clients, uh, most of them here in Washington, and much of our work over the years has been funded by our clients. Um, But we do manage through the help of our donors and through what we can earn on our contracts, we do manage to have a program of self-initiated research. Um, Starting in 1972, um, after the uh, terrorist attacks on the Olympics, at the Olympics in Munich, uh, Rand began to invest in research on terrorism. And one of our panelists here tonight, Brian Jenkins, uh, began that uh, program, uh, which he uh, continued to work in for much of the time until today. And in those early years with a few small number of of, uh, colleagues and sadly not many clients. Uh, So we had to fund this work through our our own resources. That, of course, changed uh, with 9-11. And, of course, since 9-11, our plates have been very full for our clients in in the uh, government, actually here and also uh, in the U.K. So um, when with the uh, approaching anniversary, Brian and uh, other colleagues proposed that we pull together a compendium of what we've learned uh, from, uh, from... in the 10 years since 9-11. And uh, he went ahead uh, with with those colleagues and to produce the book that's available uh, to all of you here this evening. Um, We're going to have a panel uh, to to discuss this. We're pleased to have Ann Guerin, uh, the national security editor of the Associated Press, who will be the moderator this evening. She was also in the past chief Pentagon correspondent for the AP. Um, and she's had a lot of experience in national security coverage across uh, many agencies of the U.S. government. And she'll also, no doubt, uh, draw on that experience as well as experience covering the White House, the Supreme Court, and other legal matters. And so, Anne, I'm going to turn it over to you, and uh, let's go. Thank you very much. Um, I also have an uplifting announcement. This is not a discussion about raising the debt ceiling. Um, But I'd like to welcome... (laughs) I know it's pretty much probably the only one occurring in Washington tonight that isn't. Um, But I want to welcome all of our panelists and our audience. Um, I'm going to keep my part of this brief because I know you would rather hear from um, our panel and have maximum time to ask your own questions. But I will introduce each of our panelists today, say a word or two about what their contribution to this RAND volume is. Um, Each is a contributor, and then I'll get the discussion started among the panel members, and there'll be time for audience questions um, at the end. Brian Michael Jenkins is senior advisor to the president at RAND and the author of Will Terrorists Go Nuclear? and also two RAND reports on Al-Qaeda. He has an Army Special Forces background, including in Vietnam, and was a counterterrorism advisor in the Clinton administration. His research focus is terrorism and peacekeeping and stability operations. His essay here asks whether we have succumbed to an overblown threat of nuclear terrorism. And he notes that 
al-Qaeda with no known nuclear capability but um, an avowed desire for that kind of weaponry has been elevated by some of the nation's top national security minds to the level of a national, secu uh, national nuclear threat. Jim Dobbins on the end directs RAND's International Security and Defense Policy Center. In his previous life, Jim held numerous posts in the State Department, including as an envoy to the Afghan opposition following the September 11th attacks and the U.S. invasion of Afghanistan in 2001. Ambassador Dobbins is a frequent commentator and contributor on subjects including Iraq and Afghanistan, which are the subject of his essay here. He writes that the initial unilateral U.S. response to the 9-11 attacks marked U.S. foreign policy under former President George W. Bush for years after. And he writes that both the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq suffered from that administration's lack of attention to reconstruction. He says the Bush White House underestimated the task at hand to a remarkable degree. That said, Dobbins also concludes that one legacy of 9-11 may ultimately be what he calls more or less democratic regimes in both those countries, Iraq and Afghanistan. He writes that the cost involved in midwifing those regimes would probably deter anyone, presumably including future U.S. presidents, from trying it elsewhere. In the middle, Brian Jackson is a senior physical scientist at RAND. His research focuses on homeland security and terrorism preparedness. His essay here takes a practical look at how the pursuit of terrorists and of safety at home created a culture of prevention with impossible expectations. Quoting here, fear drove action and political rhetoric frequently stoked rather than cooled the flames of urgency. That's part of his essay. He says that going forward, it would be more practical for the country to take the long view and adopt what he calls sustainable counterterrorism and homeland security guideposts. Tonight's discussion and the RAND book published today allow a look back at how the U.S. responded to the worst, although, as Brian Jackson points out, far from the first, mass terrorism attack on our shores. It's also, and perhaps more importantly, a chance to look ahead to a long-term strategy to cope with a national security landscape profoundly changed by the events of 9-11. I'll begin with a general question that each of you can take a whack at. Are the changes to our national security infrastructure and outlook brought by 9-11, massive as they are, permanent changes? Or are we likely to see the repeal or dismantling of some of the legal, bureaucratic, or other infrastructure that has grown up over these 10 years? Brian Jenkins, could we begin with you on that one? You know, um, it's a good question. I, I sat here deliberately so I could try to cheat and see the questions coming, but with the lights, well, I can't. <laughs> with the lights, I can't see a damn thing. So I literally am caught in the headlights here. Um, has, has it changed uh, permanently, or will we see some kind of uh, a dismantling? Um, I think there have been some fundamental changes in, in not just the structure of government, uh, the creation of, of homeland, the Department of Homeland Security, the reorganization of our intelligence services. Uh, those are, are not likely to be uh, dismantled. Um, at, at the same time, there's a set of attitudes that have been created. I mean, it, 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 is, it is difficult to imagine, absent a 9-11, um, that the, the United States would become so uh, continually preoccupied with internal security. And I think, I think that's going to, to last. The, the level of fear 
ebbs and flows depending on the latest incident somewhere in the world. But the preoccupation with internal security, I think, is a permanent uh, legacy in this country. I, I think the acceptance of, if not perpetual war, perpetual preparedness is, is something else that is going to be a permanent feature uh, of the landscape. I think on top of that, a lot of the security measures that we put into place probably will persist for the foreseeable future. Security, you know, security measures are like linoleum. You know, you, it's easy to lay it down, but it's impossible to get the stuff up. When, once these things are in place, they, uh, they, they do tend to become permanent. And so I think there are some fundamental changes that are going to be with us for, for the foreseeable future. Brian, do you agree? Um, I, I mean, to build on that a little bit, I mean, there certainly are fundamental changes that I think will be here for a long time. But looking back over the 10 years since 9-11, I have seen some changes in sort of the nature of, of the way that we're responding to terrorism, um, which you know, does at least suggest the possibility of evolution, if not you know, sort of revolution in, in the way that we're responding to these sort of threats. Um, Immediately post 9-11, sort of the view that you know, the answer to terrorism was a government problem and it, the American people didn't have much of a role in that has, has sort of changed somewhat over time. Um, for example, the, the increasing sort of focus on national resilience as sort of a part of um, the, sort of the national response to terrorism. Um, we're starting to see... Uh, you know, some reactions to security measures that we didn't necessarily see after 9-11. They, you know, sort of the more recent controversies about the, uh, the uh, new scanners uh, in aviation security that one of my colleagues writes about in the book, you know, sort of as an example of, you know, some pushback, not on the entirety of the security regime, but um, you know, sort of how we're implementing it and how we're doing it. Um, the pilot project for a trusted traveler program uh, that has been started is sort of a, a way of moving back in, in some ways from some of the security measures while not making sort of major revolutionary changes. Um, so in that sort of, I, I, while I agree that there are, there are certainly parts of this that will probably be, for, be with us for a long time, we are sort of demonstrating the ability to adjust uh, the, the way that we do things. Even though it seems um, whenever there is an incident, that adjusts again, right? I mean, you, things that we may have sort of gotten used to and thought, ah, well, you know, we can uh, probably do with a little bit less of the uh, airport security than we have the underwear bomber, and people freak out and say, wait a minute, how could it possibly be that we didn't catch that guy? Well, I mean, sort of at the risk of quoting myself from my essay, uh, I mean, the underwear bomber is actually a case that, that I see hope in. Um, there was a reaction. It, it did you know, cause uh, uh, imposition of more security. But when you look at polling data before and after, um, sort of the response of the, at least the polled American people, um, to that response uh, or to that incident sort of returned to baseline more quickly um, than you know, had been the case before. So while certainly attempted attacks will change risk perception, that will always happen, um, there's at least some evidence that uh, we're becoming more sophisticated in the way that we think about these threats. Jim, permanent changes? Uh, well, I'm concerned that, we're, that we'll end up um, losing the rather valuable and expensive lessons we've learned over the last 10 years in the fields of counterinsurgency and post-conflict reconstruction, uh, and that we'll have a sort of a, another 
post-Vietnam never again syndrome in which we write these doctrines out of our military schooling, um, decide we're never going to do these kinds of missions again, and go back to missions that we're more comfortable with. Um, you know, if you look at the Clinton administration, they started very badly in Somalia, did a little better in Haiti, but they didn't stay there long enough to do anything of lasting value. In Bosnia and Kosovo, they'd learned a lot of lessons about how to conduct these kinds of interventions, and they had more uh, enduring uh, uh, value as a result. The Bush administration came into office rejecting all those lessons, determined to do it differently, not at all, or if they had to, very differently. And they went through a similar learning curve at greater expense because the interventions were much larger scale. Uh, but if you look at U.S. performance in Iraq in 2003 and then 2007, you see a massive improvement in capabilities of using all of the elements of American influence and power synergistically to produce desired outcomes. And similarly, if you look at Afghanistan um, today versus uh, any time in the, in, the, in the first six or seven years of the intervention, you again see that improved uh, capacity to integrate civil and military and international instruments of power to a desired end. Um, but, uh, but the American people are getting uh, impatient and, uh, uh, and are increasingly calling these kinds of missions into, into doubt. And I think, you know, there's two schools of thought. One is we should do this better, and the other is we should not do it at all. And the middle ground, of course, is we should, we should do it less frequently, but when we do it, we should do it well. And that means preserving uh, the institutional... Um, a learning that we've gone through. And um, I think it's to Obama's credit that he didn't follow both the Clinton and Bush paths, but essentially pick up where the Bush second administration left off. He kept, he kept Gates, he kept General Luton in the White House, he kept Petraeus, um, and, uh, and essentially uh, adopted those strategies and applied them in Afghanistan, and he did exactly in Iraq what Bush had promised to do in Iraq in terms of a withdrawal schedule. Um, but I don't know whether he can sustain that through two terms, assuming he gets a second term, or whether his successor will, or whether he'll have the post-Vietnam never again and will forget about it and then pay these terrible costs all over again 10 or 15 years from now. Uh, follow to that, I mean, do, do you think that he's done, he, Obama, has done... Uh, uh, an adequate job of making the case for Afghanistan as a 9-11 legacy war, that, that uh, tying it to the reason that we invaded to begin with. Uh, at, do, do people, do Americans actually think that there really is a connection uh, uh, between those two things that, that, that makes it a war worth fighting? And you talked about a learning curve uh, over administrations. Um, do you think the Obama administration is on its own learning curve in Afghanistan, where, as you say, they adopted essentially the whole infrastructure kit and caboodle from, from the end of the uh, second Bush term when Afghanistan was a very different war, uh, kept that going for a while, but are now beginning to dismantle it and look toward 2014 exit? Uh, I, think, I think the Obama administration has made some improvements uh, since coming into office. I think it's put a much greater emphasis on sort of grassroots, um, uh, bottom-up uh, 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 efforts to improve uh, government capacity, um, emphasis on rural security, 
um, and uh, creating uh, essentially village police forces, those sort of things, I think is a necessary component of an overall strategy, whereas previously everything had been centered on the Kabul administration and on the national institutions. Um, uh, I, I think the administration has also embraced the prospect of reconciliation, that is of negotiated peace, um, something which if we'd done in 2002, uh, we might have avoided this conflict altogether because there were certainly a number of people uh, on the other side who were prepared to reconcile back at that period and we weren't prepared to even think about it. Um, so I do think that they've made some improvements in that regard. Um, uh, I, you know, personally, I'd prefer a slightly slower withdrawal schedule. I would have preferred the 23,000 troops that are going to come out next year, come out at the end of the fall when the fighting stops rather than in the middle of the what's called the fighting season there. But that's I, that's a criticism largely at the margins of otherwise what I think has been uh, a successful effort to learn from uh, prior experience. Can, can, can we differ at the margins on this point? Because I, I, I think, uh, first of all, the, the, the deployments in Afghanistan are dictated in part by uh, the situation, assessment of the situation on the ground, and in part not just in this administration, but in all governments, by political calculations at home. And therefore, um, I, I think that, that President Obama was obliged to send some reinforcements in 2009. One, the situation on the ground clearly demanded it, but also for domestic political reasons to have, in a sense, turned down some additional troops would have been sending a a political, uh, making a political statement that would have caused uh, a, a great deal of, of uh, difficulty p politically at, at, at home. But with regard to, to the withdrawal, um, I, clearly in, in the problem we face in Afghanistan is that the construction of an Afghan national army, an Afghan national police force, and the Afghan national institution institutions necessary to support that is necessarily going to take longer than the American people are willing to support the deployment of 100,000 American troops in Afghanistan. So that, that number is, is coming down. And we can talk about the, the, the angle of, of, of that trajectory, but it's coming down. I would actually like to see it come down more sharply if, and, and this is an important if, we could reconfigure our efforts in Afghanistan to put a lot more emphasis on the development of local forces, on the development of tribal forces, as some of the other authors in, in, in our volume have, have talked about um, in this volume and, and, and elsewhere. That is by, that to me is more within the Afghan tradition. It is more achievable in the short term and, and an American combat brigade, um, even one that has become, uh, with hard-earned lessons, more adept at counterinsurgency, is still an American combat brigade. And it requires uh, support, and it's a foreign presence. And I think we could do a lot more by trying to reconfigure smaller numbers, special forces, building up local and tribal forces not as the permanent solution, because what I'm talking about doesn't lead to military victory in a classic sense. It's essentially management of a very turbulent frontier at low cost. Um, I'd like to come back to uh, 
uh, Afghanistan a bit later in the um, discussion and follow up a little bit on some of those political calculations you're talking about. Um, but I wanted to ask a question to Brian Jackson. Several of these essays deal with risk, um, and it seems to me that we, collective we, have a very different set of expectations about our own physical security and national security and a different assessment of risk 10 years after 9-11. Starting with you, Brian, do you think these expectations are realistic? Uh, and is the national understanding of the risk of terrorism appropriate to the actual threat of terrorism? Well, human assessment of risk is a notorious topic because we're all very bad um, in assessing risk at all. I mean, the fact that you know, all of us drove here or in a car, we were at greater risk there of being injured than uh, you know, from terrorism at virtually any time. But just focusing on the issue of terrorism, even in that, sort of looking at both our political discourse and sort of the, the expressed risk preferences in the way that we've made decisions, uh, you know, there are complications in that as well. I mean, the, in aviation security, there's almost an implicit requirement for zero risk when we talk about the desire to keep all weapons off of airplanes um, and sort of more and more searching to be able to do that. On the other hand, uh, you know, transit targets like a subway um, where terrorists have staged you know, very significant attacks uh, in many places in the world, um, we accept much less security because there um, we want the convenience of being able to use those systems and, and sort of maintain uh, you know, why we built them in the first place. And so there you know, are sort of two sets of targets where you know, there's comparable uh, attractiveness in some ways to, to terrorists, and yet we uh, sort of make very different decisions. So you know, talking about whether our, our, our risk is, uh, sort of our assessment of risk is, is right or not, um, you know, starts, you know, peel back the onion, and there, there are many different answers to that in many different uh, sort of well, contexts. I mean, so is it a... Is it an appropriate level of risk that you can get on the on the subway next to somebody with a backpack that hasn't been hasn't been searched? I mean, do we do we understand that we're taking a risk in doing that? Well, I, I mean, looking at looking at terrorism, you know, as somebody who analyzes accident statistics and the many different ways that sort of people can be hurt as they go about their daily life, um, absolutely. And the risk of any individual um, being injured, injured or killed by terrorism, particularly in the United States, is very, very low. Um, and so from that perspective, you know, yes, treating it as, as a relatively low risk is, uh, is acceptable. I think, I think politicians have a hard time dealing with risk, or at least admitting it. I mean, if you look at the decision the president made on troop drawdowns, which we just referred to, you know, in, that, in their debates, the, there was an explicit risk cost trade-off. You know, the, the military presented several options, and there were risks. The ultimate risk is that, that, um, uh, that we won't be able to prevent uh, a, an insurgency linked to al-Qaeda from resuming control of the country. And that's the ultimate risk. But there are risks short of that in terms of our ability to sustain the campaign and prevent that. And those risks were identified. And, the, and, and there was certainly a risk of pulling troops out early next year rather than late next year. And that risk was explicitly addressed in the decision process. But he didn't come and say, I've, you know, I've made a decision that we will accept more risk in exchange for lower costs. Uh, but, but that is the only basis on which you can, can make a, a, 
a reasonable, well-considered decision about how many troops you need in Afghanistan is how much risk are you prepared to accept. If you're prepared to set up a lot of risk, you can uh, also accept a lot, uh, get a much better cost. His, many of his military advisors were, I, I think, made a, a, a very calculated point, though, of saying, yes, we, we can support this, we will support this, uh, Petraeus among them. Um, but we preferred something that had less risk. And they actually used that word, even though um, pretty much nobody else did. I, I think the, the American people have, have really developed an, a, a thoroughly, totally unrealistic uh, perception of risk. I mean, we have, we have demanded uh, essentially a risk-free society. Um, this is not just as a result of of efforts against terrorism. I mean, it's part of a longer-range trend that precedes 9-11 with liability lawyers. I mean, it's, it's everything from whether the backpack has explosives or the peanut butter sandwich. It might be, you know, uh, affect someone's allergies. We, we're, we're, we have attempted to abolish risk from our society. The, the federal government, in, in not expressly, but, but, but um, indirectly, through the creation of a Department of Homeland Security and through rhetoric, has, in effect, assumed a burden of, of guaranteeing the security of the citizens of the United States. Now, at one level, that is the function of a federal government. You have governments in order to provide security for the citizens. But on the other hand, we have, the government has gone further, in, I, I think, in, in suggesting that this is a government role and, in fact, telling people, apart from the meaningless uh, advice to be vigilant, that essentially you are passive participants in this. We provide the security. Um, you keep shopping, which was one of the messages during one of the alerts, which is, which is a bit of a schizophrenic message to begin with. We're all going to die by Tuesday, but keep shopping. Um, the, the, the fact is that, that um, we have had now since 9-11 putting aside a tragedy at, at, at Fort Hood, Texas, where Nidal Hassan killed 13 fellow soldiers. It has now been nearly 10 years without a significant terrorist attack on an American target abroad or at home. And you have to go all the way back to the 1960s to find that length of time without a, a major terrorist attack, going backward through, through uh, the embassy bombings, Oklahoma City, Pan Am 103, push right on back. And, and yet that absence of attack uh, for 10 years has somehow, uh, has somehow persuaded us that this is a natural state of things and we can keep it going and indeed, it is, it is leading almost to a kind of a, uh, when you've got a run going, doubling down to keep it going, as opposed to saying this is a remarkable success and we know damn well it isn't going to last. So, Brian Jack, is, is, was 9-11 an accelerant to uh, some sort of national expectation of a risk-free life? I mean, to, by creating, as, as well, Brian said. Certainly a national accelerant to... Uh, government promises of reducing terrorist risk and, and sort of you know, government taking on that responsibility. I mean, certainly a concern about risk uh, is something that, that permeates our society, um, sort of you know, liability lawyers as being a, a good example of that. 
but um, but at the same time that it was a, a perhaps reinforced you know, some desires for risk, you also had rhetoric of, of, of much higher risk from terrorism than frankly could be justified, which the you know the ten year period without an attack you know, has seemingly validated with data that you know the the concern after nine eleven that you know terrorism was now completely different, and you know future attacks would look more like you know nine eleven than the much smaller um, terrorist attacks that had preceded it you know, didn't end up coming to pass. So at the same time that you know there was an element of national discourse that you know was arguing for trying to you know push that risk down and eliminate it, you know there was also the the element of the national discourse that was playing up that risk. And a good example of that is the you know the discussion of you know weapons of mass destruction as you know almost a you know a, an ad, you know a connected adjunct of terrorism, um, as if you know all future terrorist attacks would would now be bigger and 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 and, and worse than 9/11. The worst one we've had was Norway, where the guy had a gun. I mean, you know, he had a car bomb and a gun, which is, you know, Oklahoma City and every, you know, previous sniper attack over the, pre, you know, preceding 30 or 40 years of the history of terrorism. And it was essentially it's a complete reversion to, to the way we used to think of terrorism as, a, you know, a lone nut job with an agenda who, you know, takes it upon himself to, to, to do something. Do you think, even though it obviously didn't happen here and it, uh, it, it, the Norway uh, events will at all change U.S. perception of of what the risk of terrorism really is. I, I don't know that it will change. I mean, in, in terms of uh, you know, have we seen have we seen vehicles loaded with explosives before? Yes, we have. Have we seen them in our own society? Yes, we have. Uh, first, first World Trade Center bombing, the Oklahoma City. Um, uh, that uh, that is not new territory for us. An active shooter, certainly. This uh, the, the fellow in, in in Norway is 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 going to get some sort of a dubious record uh, in the sense of being uh, you know the most fatalities per a single gunman. Uh, but certainly in our society, within the realm of terrorism, and and. Outside of the realm of terrorism, um, we have seen individual shooters uh, uh, go out and, and, and kill large numbers of people, and, and those are accepted in our society. So I don't think the event in Norway is going to fundamentally change people's perceptions. I think it's going to underscore one of these more fundamental changes, which is where you started off with the first question, um, and, and that is Americans have basically come to see the world outside of our borders as dangerous and a source of danger. And therefore, it is necessary for us to create a set of perimeters, an external perimeter, build walls, uh, fences, and and, and, and a proliferation of inner perimeters to somehow keep out the bad guys. It's still a very territorial notion of, 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 of security. And, and we devote an enormous amount of resources to doing that. Beyond the actual physical manifestations, what we have done in terms of our law enforcement is we basically have instructed our law enforcement when it comes to terrorism that the appropriate mode is not traditional law enforcement, that is, a crime is committed, then law enforcement investigates 
attempts to identify and apprehend the perpetrator and bring them to justice, but rather will be a, a, a paradigm, to use a wonk term, of, of prevention. And that is we want people to go out and to uh, make these arrests before the event occurs, and we are bringing people into court and trying them essentially on the basis of intentions, not on the basis of capabilities. That's new territory, and while it has been upheld by juries and judges, and it does have a strategic deterrent effect on other terrorists to think that if they talk to anybody, it's likely to be an undercover agent or a confidential informant, nonetheless, um, this is going to be in the long run really a, a question for Americans to ask, what, is, is, this, is this appropriate territory? This is, this is troubling territory. I haven't seen anybody yet calling first to screen Norwegians more carefully before they come into the country. Um, but, I, I mean, I think if this does one thing, um, it does put the threat of sort of radical Muslim terrorism in some perspective to show that there are other uh, extremists who can equally build, you know, weapons of, if not mass destruction, very substantial destruction, um, and that, you know... Uh, uh, Islamo-fascists aren't the only people out there we need to be worried about. Jim, staying with you for a minute, um, what would you identify as America's greatest accomplishments in confronting terrorism since 9-11 and, and perhaps also some of its greatest miscalculations? Well, I, I think the United States was reasonably successful in forging a, a fairly strong international consensus to deal more seriously with these issues of cross-border terrorism. Um, uh, I think as in much that was done after 9-11, uh, there were elements of, uh, we overshot some of those targets, um, uh, particularly the invasion of Iraq, disrupted this international coalition to some point, made that cooperation more difficult because many of our allies advised against it. Um, but I think that effect has been temporary and largely dissipated. And so I would think that, um, you know, creating a broader consensus, uh, new uh, modalities for intelligence, diplomatic, uh, and, uh, and uh, law enforcement cooperation, um, uh, there's been very substantial uh, improvements. So in infrastructure-wise, you'd think Department of Homeland Security and ODNI and the rest are... NCTC are good developments? Uh, no, I mean, I, I, I think both of those innovations have yet to prove their worth, I think. is the, And they may have been, you know, more disruptive than, than necessary. Well, I, I mean, to focus a little bit on, on sort of a shortcoming of our reaction, um, you know, I think one of the biggest things that affected how we responded to 9-11 was the sense of urgency that existed, that we had to act fast to improve security. Um, you know, part of that was um, you know, sort of you know, imposition of new security measures, you know, expenditures of money very quickly, you know, in part driven by you know, the immediate post-event you know, feelings of threat. I mean, it's understandable and it's only you know, sort of with the substantial benefit of hindsight um, that you know, we sort of we see now that you know, we didn't need to act that fast. We could have, you know, stopped um, and, and, and sort of been more deliberate in, uh, you know, rolling out very large technology programs, whether it's, uh, you know, sort of the border fence to, you know, to come back to the series of perimeters. 
um, which ended up you know, resulting in expenditure of a great deal of money, um, you know, resulted in um, not speaking like a good RAND analyst, you know, building in you know, measures and metrics of you know, being able to monitor the, you know, what we were doing and, and improve what we were doing over time which, you know, is, is one of the advantages that, you know, a big country has over, uh, you know, over smaller terrorist uh, uh, attackers is the ability to, to sort of take a longer view like that. Um, but that's something that, you know, we have developed over time. Uh, we're still getting there. Um, you know, many of them are, uh, many of those uh, things are still a work in progress. Um, but, uh, you know, thinking about being able to measure what we're buying for our investments in preparedness, for example, um, you know, is, a, is sort of a, a path we're still walking, but we're getting there. Maybe one thumbs up, one thumbs down from you. Uh, <laughs> no, I, I, I think we, we clearly, in, in, the, in the 10 years since 9-11, we, we have undeniably degraded uh, al-Qaeda, uh, the whole terrorist enterprise uh, represented by al-Qaeda's ideology. We have degraded their operational capabilities, removed some of the key uh, um, operational planners, uh, created a, an environment that is a lot more hostile to uh, terrorists uh, moving across borders, performing the kind of transactions that they did prior to 9-11. I certainly would agree with, with, with Jim that it, that is lar- in large measure due to unprecedented uh, uh, f- uh, cooperation among the uh, security services and law enforcement organizations worldwide. That is a major achievement. I think that cooperation... Uh, was in part our creation, I think in, in, in part. It also is owed to the fact that after 9-11, al-Qaeda pursued a terrorist campaign that included bombings in Indonesia, Saudi Arabia, Tunisia, Morocco, Egypt, countries that might have otherwise preferred to play a passive role as spectators in, in a contest between al-Qaeda and America. But when attacks took place on their soil, it became personal, and, and they cracked down on these groups as well and found reason to, to cooperate. Um, I think we have um, reconfigured our uh, intelligence uh, efforts from essentially uh, uh, state-centric, exclusively state-centric, uh, um, what it was after the Cold War, into a, a new configuration that, while agreeing with, with both of my colleagues here, is still a work in progress, nonetheless, it has probably equipped us better to deal with the threats we we face today. Um, I, I would agree with with uh, with Brian in in that um, in a in a characteristically American fashion, we we mobilized, we reorganized, we threw resources at this. That's the way Americans, in effect, do war, without a notion that. Any question is, is this sustainable? And, of course, that's the way we usually do wars, and then we win wars, and then we breathe a sigh of relief and demobilize everything and go back to normal. Uh, the fact is that I think, uh, I, I don't know that there were any of the authors uh, of essays in, in this volume that thought we were at the end of the struggle here at 10 years or that bin Laden's death was anything more than a semicolon in a, in a, in a long paragraph. Um, and therefore, this is, going to be go- this is going to go on. And if we're going to sustain it, we're going to have to become, um, I, I think, as, as Brian points out in, in, in a lot of his work, a lot smarter about how we do this. We could be chain- chasing, whether it's al-Qaeda or their successor, 
in some morphed form uh, uh, this kind of adversary for decades. And if that is the case, and that, that time frame is the time frame we're looking at, then whatever we do, as, as Brian says, has to, has to damn well be sustainable. Well, staying with that uh, uh, for a moment, what do we know about where the next 9-11, that's not a particularly great way to express it, but the next major uh, terrorist attack uh, on, on the U.S. might originate? Uh, who would or could? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, who would or even could carry out a large-scale attack on, on the U.S. homeland at this point? I'll start with you, Brian Jenkins. Um, I, I don't know. I've, I'm, I'm not nationally recognized in the field of prophecy, so I, I tend to, to avoid this kind of a question. The honest answer is I, I don't know. And as I, but, I, but I think it is safe to say that in, in any long contest, there will be surprises. And they are surprises because they won't necessarily come from the dimension that we anticipate. In, in one respect, Oklahoma City was a surprise. One, because it was domestic. And number two, if I recall, almost every pundit on the air um, was absolutely persuaded this was an attack by Muslim extremists. It was not. I'm, I'm happy to say that, that personally, I said publicly on numerous occasions, I just don't know, and I'm feeling comfortable. And therefore, with, with that hindsight, was smart enough to avoid the questions this time around with the Norway thing, in that it, there, is, there is no percentage in leaping out and saying things before you don't know, because um, if you are... Uh, if it turns out you say, I don't know, and everyone else says it's Muslim, which everyone basically said in, in, the wake, in the immediate wake of the Norway attack, then you look like an idiot. And if it turns out that it isn't, it's something else, no one remembers that you said, I don't know anyway. So uh, there's sometimes when it's just best to keep your mouth shut. But, but there will be surprises. The, some of the surprises are of our own making. The invasion of Iraq was a surprise turn of events. We, we, we were the source of the surprise. Um, the economic crisis is, in a sense, a surprise. The so-called Arab Spring, the revolutions taking place in North Africa and Middle East, is a huge surprise. And having just returned from the Middle East uh, and, and talking with analysts there looking at the, at, at the landscape, the only thing we could agree upon is that for the, probably the next decade, we don't know what's going to happen. We have some guesses about which governments might go down, but what will replace them and how that will change the political landscape, uh, these, these dice are still rolling down the table. So. I, I, I was facetious in saying we know as much as we did on 9-10, but in fact on 9-10 we knew that al-Qaeda was trying to attack the United States. Um, the only thing that was surprising about 9-11 uh, was the manner of the attack. They'd already tried to blow up the raid World Trade Center once. Um, they'd blown up two embassies in the last uh, 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 couple of years. Um, and we had all kinds of warnings that they were uh, trying to mount an attack on the United States. Uh, intelligence analysts were not surprised uh, that there was an attack, uh, and they identified al-Qaeda as the source of the attack almost immediately. 
Afghanistan or Pakistan at this point be uh, a possible or even likely uh, origin point for, for that next somebody, attack? You know, somebody influenced by Pakistan tried to blow up a bomb in Times Square just a, a year ago. Um, so yes, I mean, there are continuing plots that originate in Pakistan. Not in Afghanistan, you know, as long as we keep 100,000 troops there, we can guarantee Afghanistan is not going to be a launching pad for terrorist attacks on the United States. It's a risk-cost factor. We're prepared to accept a higher risk of Afghanistan, again, serving that purpose for the lower cost. And that's a rational enough decision. Do you expect to see a, a, a political debate as the 2014 uh, uh, exit approaches about whether Afghanistan, again, would be that crucible, that, that it's worth keeping an additional brigade? Or, I mean, uh, it, well, the U.S. has already said it's prepared to keep a significant but much lower number of troops in Afghanistan after 2014 and is currently negotiating an agreement with Karzai that calls for that. Uh, they haven't put any numbers on it, but the numbers that are often talked about are something in the range of 20,000 troops. And that would be a force that would stay indefinitely as long as uh, an insurgency linked to al-Qaeda was trying to take over the country. Um, so, I, I mean, I, I, whether that will be controversial, initially the debate is in the Republican Party, since there are some Republicans now calling for accelerated withdrawals. There's always been a strong constituency in the Democratic Party that was leery about those kinds of commitments uh, but my guess is that, that the two candidates, when they're chosen, will both support such a path. Brian Jackson, first to you. Do you think this 10th anniversary and the additional attention focused on terrorist th threats is likely to yield any new call or attempts for, to further expand security measures? Do you, We've touched a little bit on this, but do you see any appetite for that, either within the administration or Congress? Um, well, of course, I mean, that, that brings up the crystal ball question uh, domestically rather than internationally. But, um, I mean, anniversaries certainly have power. They certainly, uh, you know, bring back, uh, you know, a lot of the discussions. But, you know, if anything, you know, we have sort of reinforcing uh, forces that are sort of pushing more against expansion of, of security than, than for it, you know, from the perspective of, you know, the, the controversies about aviation security. But more importantly than that, the, the fiscal constraints that, that will uh, obviously be faced. And we said we weren't going to be discussing the debt ceiling, but it's clear that there will not be uh, lots of free resources to be throwing at, at new and expanded security measures uh, em emphasizing sort of the, the cost-benefit assessment that, that needs to be made before we, we do new things, which uh, would be a, a force pushing against it. Do you think there's a national consensus around that, though, that, that perhaps we're at the end of more is better? In security, and using the term national consensus around anything these days seems like a very strong term. So, I mean, certainly, uh, I, I don't think there's a, a complete national consensus that, uh, in all areas, sort of security is 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 at the at the highest level that it should be. Um, but you know, again, I, I I sort of just come back to the practicalities of uh, you know, sort of more security costs more money, and there there are many things that we want to do with limited resources. I guess it would be that the Department of Homeland Security will not be exempted from the forthcoming budget cuts. Brian Jenkins, do you think there's I, I, a... I think, that's a I, I think that's an important point. I mean, at, at, um, first of all, given, given financial constraints, um, 
there are going to be at the very best level resources and most likely declining resources for almost everything we do in almost everything that is done in government. Um, at one time, it, it seemed that um, just given the nature of the, 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 the complexion of the current Congress, that defense budgets and homeland security budgets would be excluded from, uh, from that. I, I don't believe that's the case. I think there will be pressure across the board um, to reduce expenditures. And without, uh, uh, and therefore that raises really a, a, a serious problem here because the combination of the, the financial constraints, the fact that we made it 10 years, or almost made it 10 years, don't want to tempt fate here, with, without a significant terrorist attack. And although it has less meaning, nonetheless in, in the minds of many people, the death of bin Laden somehow uh, is, is offered as, well, why are we still doing this? It's, it's, isn't it over? Can't we demobilize? Can't we dismantle? And that would be dangerous. So balancing those, those, those resources constraints uh, and, and to a certain extent, weariness with, with what we're doing, war weariness, uh, counterterrorism weariness, um, I think the real challenge is going to be how do we thoughtfully review that process so that we just don't make these sort of mindless cuts. There are going to be cuts, but we don't do it in a mindless way and do it in a way that can maintain, albeit accepting some greater risk, but, but maintain... A, the essential components of a sustainable counter-terrorist strategy. And, and there isn't an easy formula for that. That's, that's going to have to be something we really work to, 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 to get right. But we're not going to... One of the figures I saw, and I have no idea uh, how people do all these calculations, but, but is that the first 10 years of the, of the war on terrorism has cost us $3.8 trillion. We're not going to spend another $3.8 trillion unless there is some horrendous terrorist event that obliges us uh, 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 to do that. But under current circumstances, resources are coming down. You and, and a couple of, uh, uh, of your colleagues um, have pointed to uh, bin Laden saying that it is not a, uh, that's not a period at the end of the sentence. But don't you think it, it coming almost so close to the 10-year anniversary that the, the death of bin Laden does sort of uh, take the air out of the, the uh, I think, um, what, what you, Brian Jackson, have, have, t- have talked about is the sense of urg- national sense of urgency and we've got to throw resources at it. We've got to hunt him. We've got to do this. We've got to do that. I mean, heck, they got him. Like, I mean, does it, it, it make it more difficult to make the argument that the kind of, of huge infrastructure that it required to mount that operation, uh, uh, both at home and abroad, is, is a worthwhile investment? I think, I think it's too early to tell what the significance of killing bin Laden is. You know, we captured Saddam and things just got worse in Iraq. We killed Zarqawi, and things still got worse. Now, eventually, they got better. Um, uh, and maybe those two events contributed to them getting better. There was just a, a several-year lag time before they started getting better. So it's possible that they won't replace 
bin Laden with anybody with comparable charisma, reputation, ability to uh, get recruits to, to, uh, uh, to secure funding, and that this will wind down. And we just don't know. I think there's, I th- I think there's at least one more, more than symbolic uh, change that is taking place in, in uh, al-Qaeda, and that is bin Laden, although he wasn't the active CEO, I mean, he's more of a, a, of a distant chairman and perhaps may even have been dismissed by, by some of his lieutenants as, oh, here's another exhortation from the old man. But, but nonetheless, what he did provide, what he did maintain, was a unanimity of focus in, in what is an inherently fractious Enterprise, and, and I suspect that uh, what it will create is in the already decentralized Al Qaeda enterprise, we will see even greater decentralization, more dependence than ever before on the local, uh, on, on the regional affiliates, on like minded allies, and on individual recruits, the so called homegrown terrorists. Now, that can still represent a, a, a significant threat, not, not necessarily on, on the scale of a 9-11 event, but um, bin Laden's successor, uh, uh, Zawahiri, uh, sometimes uses the term a global intifada, which is not a centrally directed large-scale thing. It's just a diffused threat, which in many cases is more difficult to deal with than... A, a more hierarchical, centralized threat. And so they, this will basically contribute to what we've already seen and as this continue, uh, continuous morphing of a very resilient and very opportunistic ideology and organization, organization in quotes, because it doesn't have the kind of wiring diagram that, that we're accustomed to in the West. Jackson, uh, quickly before we go to audience questions, uh, uh, death of bin Laden, good for business, bad for business for you? Well, I mean, certainly on, on our side, the death of bin Laden is a potent symbol. I, I do think it reduces some of the sense of urgency. But you know, to, to sort of echo a little bit, uh, you know, it, 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 it's not going to make the threat go away, and it, it merely underscores in some ways you know, developing strategies where we can sort of maintain uh, a level of counterterrorism Prevention response capability that's sustainable, um, you know whether that and, and, and a mix of, of, of capabilities where you know we get value out of it, no matter how that global intifada sort of morphs um, and uh, you know, provides us you know, utility in responding to natural disasters in addition to, to terrorism threats as well, and therefore makes it easier to maintain it over the longer term. We'll uh, go to audience questions now. Um, there's a, a system for this that involves people with uh, walking around with microphones. So I think I would get, try to get their attention. <laughs> okay. Uh, thank you very much for a very interesting presentation. I'd like to ask each of you, what is the threat that keeps you awake at night? You want me to start this? Um, yes, please. U.S. default, I guess. Is the, uh, <laughs> that's certainly a more serious threat than that's any of the others at the moment. That would have, that would probably have an economic impact significantly larger than 
Well, there, you know, there are, uh, having participated in a number of, of red team exercises and, and um, evil genius workshops and so on, where the participants attempt to, to mimic the, the thinking and planning of a terrorist organization and actually plan events, there are a number of, of, of scenarios that, uh, that I thought are, are truly worrisome. They are not in the realm of, as one might anticipate, in the realm of nuclear weapons in Manhattan or, or some of the other ones that, are, uh, that make uh, marvelous movie scripts. Uh, but having said that, because they keep me up at night, uh, I, I, I don't want to talk about them publicly because that would, um, uh, that would make them even more worrisome. So we'll let them just reside in the Evil Genius Workshop, and I think they classify those reports after, uh, after, at the end of the exercises, and I think appropriately so. Um, now, having said that, there is within every, every person I meet a, a, a tiny little armchair terrorist. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm almost invariably approached by people after every session like this who, say, who start off with something like, if I were a terrorist, I would... <laughs> Dot dot dot. And at this point, you, you know, even even uh, e- even mild librarians are capable of the most <laughs> horrendous imaginations in this, and so I'll, I'll I'll leave it at that. Well, I'll 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 take a different run at that. The you know, looking at at the at the response that we made to 9/11. I mean, the the, the statement that sort of terrorism is judo, um, you know, where the attacker tries to, you know, turn the response of the, of the attack against them. Um, you know, Al- Al-Qaeda was pretty good at that in terms of getting us to spend money hastily, um, getting us to do things that didn't perhaps show us at our best. Um, and so I suppose, you know, the, the scenario that keeps me up at night is that we get enough repeats or something big enough n- not where the effects of the terrorism is, is what gets us, but, you know, get us to, to stimulate the autoimmune response again. Next on the panel's left. Thank you for your comments, everyone. I am specifically curious about this comment that you had earlier about uh, barriers both domestically and abroad between the scary, dangerous world and the safe haven of America. Between our agencies and between many different uh, actors in our policy-making world, RAND included, do you see any inefficiencies? Is there a risk of bureaucratic overreach? Is that in and of itself dangerous? Um, specifically, Mr. Jenkins, you made that comment, but uh, the other panelists, uh, I'd be happy to hear from you as well. Uh, of course there are inefficiencies. I mean, we, you know, we spent decades trying to take friction out of the movement of, of, of people, the movement of goods, the movement of ideas, and we have spent the last 10 years putting friction back in the system, essentially uh, restricting or, or attempting at least to, to, to monitor the movement of people, the movement of goods. Uh, um, we haven't gone up to the level of, of, of the movement of ideas yet, but there are there are those who would readily would readily endorse that. Um, so yes, there are inefficiencies in this, and and people have argued that 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 inefficiency that we have created 
is required in order to ensure the effectiveness of our security measures. And it has been a powerful argument. I think going forward the argument is, is going to be turned around, and that is, can we, without sacrificing the effectiveness, uh, gain greater efficiencies and do these things smarter than we have done in the past? And that's what we're beginning to see, for example, as we explore um, um, new methods, for example, take the most dramatic example, where, in fact, where, where most Americans come into contact with their own government uh, is not here in Washington, but when they go to an airport. And then it's really, for many, a hands-on experience. Um, and that has provoked a, a certain backlash. And, and Jack Riley, uh, who is with us here this evening in his chapter, talked about can we have a new approach to aviation security that allows us to maintain the effectiveness, that is, to keep risk within tolerable bounds, but at the same time does this in a smarter fashion that takes out some of those efficient inefficiencies and, in fact, by doing so allows us to reallocate resources in a sen sensible way and perhaps even gain some, some effectiveness. And I think that's just one example. I think we're going to be, in some of the work that Brian Jackson has done, what we're really looking for now is can we maintain or, in some cases, even increase the effectiveness of security by doing it smarter than we are doing it now. We did a lot of things hastily um, without time to think about it. And that's, uh, that's not a criticism. Wars are wasteful. And you do a lot of things because you don't know what's going to happen and, and you don't worry about it at the time. As things go on for a long time, then you begin to hopefully learn how to do it better. And I, and, and I think uh, Brian Jackson's uh, work is, is exploring some interesting uh, uh, directions in, in, in that regard. The R word again, risk. I mean, it, uh, Brian, are, are we at the are, are we at the nexus here of of, of uh, where the aviation uh, going public is probably not the right term um, is not willing to to tolerate any more inconvenience and delay and any and any you know more invasive searches than they already have uh, uh, in order to reduce the risk even a little bit more? Well, I mean, the, the, the question is whether, you know, how much benefit we would get, you know, whether people would tolerate it is one question, but, I mean, but the other is, you know, how much more security you could get by, you know, ladling on another measure of security, you know, at the security checkpoint for passengers. Well, we haven't gone, like, a full Israel here. I mean, we could, right? Uh, there would be practical constraints to doing that um, in terms of the amount of time that you know, one would have to spend getting to the airport. But, I mean, to, to build on Brian's point a little, uh, you know, one of the advantages that we, we get in revisiting our security measures and asking the question, you know, can we do this better? Can we do it faster in case of a security checkpoint? Can we do it cheaper? Um, you know, is, is to try to, to sort of improve the, the level of benefits that we're getting and, and, and reduce costs going forward because we have to. Um, but not in a way um, where we necessarily have to take risk to do that. Uh, Brian, uh, you mentioned pushback um, on the security issues. Have you 
first of all, how do you assess the pushback? Uh, when do you believe it started? And have you looked at the pushback in the first responder community? Um, well, so in the work that we've done, we you know haven't done opinion polling on this issue. You know, we rely on sort of opinion polls from from others. But you know, in looking at uh, sort of how the the discourse about aviation security you know has changed over time. Um, you know, you start. The pushback is relatively recent, although you see you do see some before that. I mean, in the first responder community, I mean, you can think about um, sort of law enforcement. Um, in in that community, I suppose the the question would be pushback where. Um, so, for example, when uh, even relatively soon after 9/11, where there was a focus on sort of more. Um, it's not the right word, invasive policing, if you will, um, you know, in terms of police intelligence gathering. I remember you know, early publications talking about pushback in the Dearborn Police Department because they felt they had a very good relationship with you know, the Muslim communities that you know, they were protecting um, and you know, had confidence that, that they you know, didn't need to go to a more sort of invasive policing model in order to achieve the counterterrorism goals that um, they wanted to achieve. Is that pushback? Um, I guess you could call it that, but it, you know, it could also be termed as you know, sort of an example of a, of a practice that was working um, you know, that could be you know, transferred otherwise. In, in terms of the first rep- responder community more generally, you know, did you have specific parts of the responder community no, in mind? I'm, or? I'm trying to understand how you assess uh, the pushback. Um, and in the first responder community, I think the pushback started probably in about 2003, um, when uh, police chiefs and fire chiefs wanted to get away from terrorism and get back to basics because it was distracting them from the things that they needed to do day in and day out. And I was wondering if you had looked at that. Rand has done, uh, other folks at Rand uh, have done work looking at the effects of the post 9 11 changes on police departments in particular. Um, you know, that, that did look at you know, how the changes in resources um, you know, affected the ability to um, uh, do some of the day to day missions that we rely on police departments um, to do uh, to protect the population. Um, there have been other people who have studied, you know, looking at the effects of. Uh, resource changes on public health departments. Um, one of the other pieces in the uh, in the book was looking at public health and how um, there have been studies showing that sort of movement of resources towards bioterrorism, while potentially bringing more resources to public health, also resulted in you know, less focus on public health problems that we rely on public health departments to. Um, to address um, in terms of protecting the population as well. So, I mean, there certainly has been study in that. It's, that hasn't been study that I personally have done, but there, there have been, has been work done on it. Let me, let me add a point here. Um, first of all, um, with regard to the, the, the Dearborn police, I think that that probably uh, raises a, a general principle. That is, in, in how local communities deal with what they perceive as the local terrorist threat through preventive intelligence, through community policing, 
uh, how are they manage that, whatever balance of uh, uh, mixture of measures they use, is really appropriately left to the local community. Um, I mean, that is an, an important lesson learned. We, we, we don't have a, a federal police department. Uh, this is not a function for national police. The country is so big and, and its population is so diverse and its community is so diverse that even when we're talking about specific diasporas, uh, there is enormous difference between those and within those. And, and, and so uh, the government can, the federal government can provide support to these things but cannot, cannot dictate uh, what, is, what is the right way to do this. That's, that's, that's a, uh, an important uh, local, um, local measure, and I think that's a lesson that we take away. Um, many of the things that the local departments, however, do um, in, including the support of the, uh, the state support of the fusion centers, uh, uh, local counter-terrorist activities are highly dependent on federal government grants. Um, added security for surface transportation, for example. As those grants are reduced, those activities are going to be reduced simply because the local governments don't have any more money than the federal government. They're, they're, they're strapped for cash as well. And so uh, some of that is simply going to go away because of the economic constraints. I'm, I'm from Baluchistan. I wanted to ask, you see, uh, a question. As far as the foreign countries goes, number-wise, uh, three of the most potentially dangerous countries can you guys are you guys in agreement which are the three most dangerous countries as far as a future foreign terrorist attack is concerned in the United States and the second part is have you guys ever given thought to the growth of political Islam in US prison system what are the three uh, most dangerous countries. Um, it partially depends on dangerous to whom. So there, there are, for instance, uh, terrorists' um, or activity in Pakistan tends to relate heavily to the United States and Great Britain. Whereas if you're French, then you're more worried about North African uh, extremist groups. Um, uh, but certainly for the United States, uh, uh, Pakistan is, uh, I think, at the top of the list. If you're looking at places where inspiration and perhaps even organization uh, and, uh, and, and individuals might, uh, I suppose others, uh, Yemen is now um, also uh, a source of, uh, of, comparable, uh, of comparable concern. Um, so th those are the ones that strike me. But again, one of the reasons that it's somewhat difficult to coordinate an international strategy on this is that it depends very much on where the diasporas are and what the historic links are. So Pakistan has historic links to the UK, and therefore it's much, uh, it, it represents a much more serious threat than it does to France or Germany, uh, who have uh, uh, diasporas that come from different regions and therefore uh, are subject to different uh, uh, influences. Do you agree, uh, Pakistan, Yemen? I, you know, in, in, in looking at uh, um, 
the those in the country, looking at the issue of so-called homegrown terrorism, those in the country already who may be inspired by conflicts and ideologies um, um, from abroad, the among the homegrown uh, terrorists in, in the United States, those ar- uh, arrested for, for terrorist activity within, I'm talking about jihadists now, I'm not talking about right-wing or issue-oriented groups, um, the two predominant groups are, are Pakistanis and Somalis. Um, that's because there are, and, and, and it turns out, where you have a, a, a local immigrant population connected to a foreign country in conflict, that is a higher probability that, that those people will be somehow engaged in that. For, um, as Jim correctly points out, I mean, for, for Europe, it is Pakistan, primarily connections with the United Kingdom. Uh, for France, it's primarily Algeria. In some other parts, uh, Somalia, again, countries in, in conflict that, that, that where this slops over internationally. And this is not new territory for the United States. I mean, look, we, we had in the 1970s, we had uh, Croatian separatists, we had Armenians attacking Turks, we had uh, uh, anti-Castro Cubans blowing up things in, in Miami, we we had an, an array of, of, of these groups, and in fact, we had a higher level of terrorist violence in the United States in the 1970s than we have had uh, uh, since uh, uh, 9-11. With regard to the second part of your question on, on political Islam, there are, there are sharp differences between the European view and, 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 and our view on this. In, in, in Europe, putting aside the issue of terrorism, um, there are concerns about their ability to assimilate um, uh, uh, Muslim populations that are in fact marginalized, that, that um, are in certain countries alienated, and this has created a problem for them. In the United States, we, we, we have tended not to worry about that. In fact, when we talk about radicalization in the United States, radicalization itself is not is no one's business except the individuals, and so we have to use, in a sense, a hyphenated term. It's radicalization and recruitment to terrorism. And if you don't get the second part, the first part is none of your business. You can have all the radical ideas you want. It is the, it is the recruitment to terrorism. Um, thus far in the United States, however, with regard to the assimilation of, of Muslim Americans, that has been, uh, they have been well assimilated into American society. Um, they are, in fact, demographic, uh, economically and, and in terms of education, doing better than the average uh, uh, American. Uh, and while there certainly are veins of resentment and handfuls of hotheads, there is no reservoir of support for, for al-Qaeda's ideology or any of the other extremist Islamist uh, um, um, ideologies. In fact, despite the, the exhortations... Um, by uh, al-Qaeda, especially on the Internet, the turnout over the past 10 years of actually people willing to support terrorist groups or plot terrorist attacks in this country is, is tiny. We're talking about fewer than 200 people. Um, that is, you know, that's six out of 100,000. Uh, Iran or North Korea in that top three of, of, you know, major problem children? Well, not... I mean, 
it depends on how you use definitions. Um, uh, I, I, I don't think North Korea has had any history of uh, supporting terrorism anywhere except perhaps in South Korea that I'm aware of. Um, uh, on Iran, I think they um, certainly do support groups we label as terrorists, although others would argue that they're freedom fighters, Hezbollah, Hamas. Um, uh, they're essentially insurgencies, uh, proto-insurgencies. Um, uh, and, and they're certainly on the American terrorist list. And they have, uh, they have staged attacks against Americans. Um, and they are supporting groups in Iraq and Afghanistan that do attack Americans. So I think you'd have to put Iran pretty highly up there. But it's not that you're getting crazy Iranians who are plotting and then coming here. It's, it's a question of Iran as a state, not as a society. That's, that's, uh, that would be the concern. I think we have time for maybe one more audience question. Ask a question with a bit of a different focus, and ask each of you how you feel or what you feel are the moral repercussions uh, of 9/11. What these, what what is the moral standing of the United States in the world, and what the repercussions on our national collective conscience has been? Will the war on terror be looked at as a just war or an unjust war? Um, perhaps comment on our interrogation practices and the like. Um, I, I think that, that certainly the, the vigorous action that the United States took after 9-11 is justified. Um, Iraq was different. I think Iraq was a war by choice. And, and wars by choice have to have uh, uh, compelling reasons. Uh, the reason we went to war in Iraq turned out just not to be true. And I, and I think it was a a, a distraction in terms of attention and resources uh, uh, from what I would have uh, regarded as the, the the primary enemy, and that was and, and that has remained the Al Qaeda enterprise. But I'm kind of the Senator Cato when it comes to Al Qaeda. I mean, I end every every comment with, "And furthermore, Al Qaeda must be destroyed." Um, in in terms of did did you know we. We did dent our values, to be sure. Um, the, we, we probably avoided uh, some of the worst excesses. I mean, uh, every democracy faced with the threat of terrorism has expanded police powers, facilitated collection of intelligence, and, and uh, created new areas of crime, in some cases altered uh, uh, trial procedures. Uh, we did some of all of that, but we did not. We did not intern Arab Americans. We did not intern Muslims. Um, we did not have wholesale roundups in this country. Um, we did not create a domestic intelligence service. Um, we did, although there was some pushing and shoving about this, maintain habeas corpus at least for those who are arrested in this country. Those who are taken into uh, custody or captured abroad were, were in a, a different category. Um, we did uh, violate our own, our own rules in, in, as a consequence of, of, of some executive uh, branch assertion of authority. Uh, Congress and the courts pushed back on that some. Um, perhaps not, as, not, not all the way back, though. I mean, the, the uh, warrantless wiretaps 
um, although they they do have uh, now judicial oversight guaranteed, that is a lot less than it looks. Um, in terms of probably the most egregious, uh, 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 we did not have um, preventive detention, as many countries have. Um, on the other hand, uh, in some of, I think, some of the I think in some of these prosecutions, we're going to be looking back at a few of these and really saying, I'm not sure that was the right thing. But the most egregious example is the one of, of, of treatment of prisoners, um, uh, the use of torture. And there's, there's not other words for it. It, it. it is the use of torture, in my view. Uh, and I feel very strongly about this as, as, as a former soldier. And, and I think that that was, was a, a violation of everything we stand for. And I'm completely aware of the the exquisite scenarios about wouldn't you do this if you knew that this individual had an atomic knew where the atomic bomb was and was going to go off in 30 minutes. Well, that's a great scenario for 24. I've never seen one in real life. And moreover, that doesn't justify it as national policy. Um, and and so um, I think it was a violation. I am glad to see that we. In, in Congress, uh, rejected that ultimately, owing to uh, largely the efforts of one senator who politically I disagree with on almost every other issue. But on this, um, I, I, I think uh, Senator John McCain was, was courageous, and I think that others, like uh, um, uh, former CIA Director James Woolsey and so on, spoke out vigorously about this, and, and, and I think appropriately so. So there are some black marks on our record. We have dented the Constitution a couple of times. We have tarnished some of our values, but I think in, in the long run, we have righted ourselves and, and, and we'll come through this thing with, uh, with our reputation as Americans and American values intact. Just war? Um, well, I think it answers the question. I think polling, uh, polling data answers your question. That is, in the aftermath of 9-11, there was a huge wellspring of sympathy um, regard for the United States went way up. Um, then, as the U.S. overreacted in some respects, um, uh, and, and Brian has mentioned most of those respects, uh, uh, international regard for the United States plummeted to historically low levels, maybe the uh, lowest levels ever. Um, uh, but as we corrected uh, most of those mistakes, um, uh, I think uh, with one very significant exception, um, international regard to the United States is now back at the normal, relatively high level everywhere in the world except in the Muslim world. And in the Muslim world, uh, it has not recovered. Um, now, that's not exclusively because of 9-11. Uh, a lot of Muslim resentment has to do with our relationship with Israel and the considered uh, unresolved issues of Palestine. So, um, uh, but, but it has... It, it, the, the, the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq and the global war on terror, as it was, the, the phrase has now largely been dropped, but, but the phraseology and the initial way we explained ourselves um, uh, created among many Muslims a, a feeling that this was a war on Islam, which of course it wasn't, and that has not entirely dissipated. Jackson, you get the last word. Yeah, I, I don't have too much to add to the to the responses of my colleagues. I mean, there there were certainly things that you know, tarnished the image of the United States that, even without the benefit of hindsight, uh, at the time I I would have agreed we shouldn't be doing um, the treatment of prisoners and torture among them. 
Uh, there are many things with the benefit of hindsight I wish we hadn't done, but I understand uh, you know, in the context of the time. Uh, but uh, with Jim, I, I, I see the trends going in the right direction, and uh, I think the, the point is to let our future actions as we go forward uh, speak for us the way that we would like to be spoken for. Let's, let's uh, thank the moderator and our uh, panel. This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about these issues and to explore RAND's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries.